Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the world's leading podcast for injectors and cosmetic businesses. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, an aesthetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend David Segal, an entrepreneur and an aesthetic business mentor. Each episode of IA showcases unfiltered conversations with guests from around the world. In a sometimes disjointed industry, IA aims to help educate and connect our global community to raise the bar for both our businesses and our patients. To further support and educate our listeners, we offer a range of additional resources under our IA Patreon subscription service. This caters for injectors and business owners of all levels and includes interactive live Zoom sessions, webinars, hints and tip videos, private chat groups and exciting future content to come. To subscribe to IA Patreon, head to www.insideaesthetics.com forward slash Patreon or click the link in our podcast description. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. Hey guys, bit of an exciting announcement before we jump into today's episode. We are doing our first ever sponsored IA webinar, and we are joined by a company called Zytide, who are a Sydney-based company who produce and sell exosomes. Now, what are exosomes? <laughs> what are exosomes, Jake? <laughs> well, you better come to the IA Zooms and find out. Um, look, exosomes are new to Australia. Um, if you're an injector or an aesthetic practitioner, you've probably heard about these things. Our American colleagues, European colleagues are already playing with them, but they are, well, I'm not going to give the game away, but okay. they're a new, they're a new modality of treatment right. and the indications that we understand that we'll be using them for are mainly skin rejuvenation and also hair restoration so that's mm, interesting yeah definitely tuning in yeah um so you know if, if you're running a clinic potentially a new service that you can offer hair as well as obviously face and skin um we've got an expert all the way from malaysia uh, and thank you again to Zytide for sponsoring us for this um we're branding these as ia zooms but it you know it's a live webinar right um we have to have healthcare professionals only. So sorry if you're eager, but not in that in that category. We have to be compliant. Mm -hmm. So when you register for the um, webinar, please just leave your details, and then we'll see you in the evening. But it's on the 18th of September. Yep. Uh, 6.30 in the evening, Sydney time, or AEST. You're welcome to join from anywhere in the world if you want to <laughs> stay up in the middle of the night yep. or, and join us. Um, it'll be going for about an hour, maybe an hour and a half, but, you know, it'll be... Um, all about exosomes, how to use them. And then the product that we'll actually be selling by Zytide is called Exomide. Right. So that's what um, we'll actually be using in Australia. Okay. And um, in terms of registering for it, people just go, to, uh, assuming follow the link on our, in our bio and our Instagram is probably the yeah, best place to go. Yeah, that's the easiest place to go to. So if you're on our Instagram, Inside Aesthetics Podcast, just click the link and you'll see a link to um, IA Zooms and you can register there. If you prefer Googling these things, just go to World Wide Web, insideaesthetics.com forward slash examide. All of that information, of course, will be at the end of this podcast description. So well, you don't need to remember any of that. Well, very excited to learn about a new product. We seem to be spoiled at the moment with a lot of new things coming out. So it's yeah. getting interesting. Exciting. All right. Well, enjoy the rest of the episode, guys. I hope you uh, we see you on the webinar and um, enjoy. Thanks, guys. David, this episode is probably 120 episodes overdue. It's been a while since we've done a Beauty of the World, isn't it? Yeah, and, we, uh, and, and maybe we, we won't stop. Maybe we'll do more. Who knows? Well, we'll we'll see. We'll see what the fans demand. But I know that uh, we covered part of Asia. 
Yeah, like we, we did. did the subcontinent, which was the Indian region. Yeah, that's right, with Rashmi Shetty. Um, that was, I think, episode like 107, a long, long, long time yes. ago. And so today we've got my good friend all the way from Singapore, Dr. Felix Lee, and we're going to call this one The Beauty of the World, Singapore and Asia. And we're going right. to define what we mean by Asia. Right. Um, Felix, how are you, my friend? And why don't you tell our listeners all about you, your practice, what you do, and then we can get into the, the topic of the day, which is The Beauty of the World. Well, I'm great. I'm great. How are you guys? We're we good. are good. Uh, yes. Hi, Jake. Hi, David. Well, my name is Felix. I run Dr. Felix Lee Medical Aesthetics Clinic in Singapore. And um, we're a comprehensive clinic. We do everything aesthetics. But of course, we focus a lot on fillers, on non-surgical facelifts. And uh, I've been in aesthetics for about seven or eight years. The focus on fillers kind of came um, by chance. I had I was invited to this um, MD Coach Leaders training all those years ago. And I... I mean, I saw how it's kind of like changed my results, changed my practice, and I was delivering value for my patients. And I kind of just kept going down that path, and I've learned, I got myself better. And eventually, I came full circle, I started training for Elegant Medical Institute, and that's where I met Jake. Right. right. Okay. And I'll be seeing you in two weeks' time as well, as part of that. Uh, yeah. Oh, awesome. So and, I'm looking forward. it. And uh, what were you doing before you ventured into aesthetics? So what's your, what's your background in medicine prior to coming to the dark side <laughs> of aesthetics? What, what, what were you doing before? I was a resident in the medicine. Uh, sorry, what, sorry? A resident. So a you, resident. I, I guess you were just doing the normal rotations of medicine, surgery, all the rest of yes. it. Right. And what was yes. the... What was the impetus or the, the motivation that sort of made you move to a completely different, you know, some people don't refer to it as real medicine. They call it sort of, you know, the dark arts. So <laughs> what was, what was the, what motivated you to go that way? It's really by chance, you know, it was really by chance. The Singapore used to be, we used to follow the British system of medicine where we had specialty trainees. And then eventually we switched over to residency, the American system. So this whole thing created a lot of uh, administrative um, changes. And there was just a batch of us stuck in between. So at that point, I thought, you know what? I'm just going to venture into this. It was, it, I have to admit this, I never even really knew aesthetics existed as a, as a you know, um, um, field of practice when I was really doing medicine. So I got into it and it was great. And um, as, I, as I said, over the years, I really found meaning to this work. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, where did you learn? Who taught you? How long did it take you before you felt you were, I guess, proficient enough to then open your clinic? Well, this this is this is like a interesting topic, right? I'm not sure how it's like in Australia, but um in Singapore and many parts of the world, well, aesthetics is not a specialty. So you don't go through residency, you don't go through specialty training, you don't actually get taught in a structured way, mm. which I guess means all of us learn our aesthetics very differently. You you could learn it from 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 a institute created by a vendor, you could learn it from your peers, your bosses. You could learn it from nurses. You could learn it online through you guys. YouTube, just, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's just very non-structured, right? And so, so now I think I think there's more there's more institutions in place where we are offering training to younger doctors, doctors starting out. So just to get, to get them started on the right foot with structured training, I think it's great. Yeah, um, well, that's fascinating and the reason we chose you felix or the reason i chose you is because we bumped into each other having a beer when i was at the airport about a month ago on my way back from thailand where we did the md codes and we got talking about this topic again and i thought okay let's revisit this but it also made sense to choose a doctor from singapore because 
you know, I'm going there in a couple of weeks' time, but I've only been once before. But it's a very mixed population. Obviously, you know, Chinese dominance, but then you've got a lot of European influence, uh, Indian sort of, um, you know, immigrants from many, many years ago. And it's kind of an interesting mix of people. And I, I wonder whether your exposure to that sort of patient gives you a better understanding of ethnic differences and, you know, maybe more insight into what we actually mean by Asian patients, because you're going to see a whole different variety of Asian patients. Whereas, say you're in mainland China, you're probably going to see just Chinese people, but not much mixed race people. So hopefully that's a, a good background to, to where we started. Any other, any other comments about the beauty of the world to remind people? <sighs> well, I mean, this all started with, uh, I guess, some comments we had from people around, well, the fact that we don't get trained more with people from different parts of the world. So when you go to a training session with Allegan, for example, it's generally presented as a, as a Caucasian, middle-aged Caucasian face is, is sort of the generic sort of aesthetic mm. that people are trained upon. And we obviously live in a, a very multicultural world now. We've got people with different ethnic mixed backgrounds and traveling and immigrating. And it seems like we need to educate ourselves more on how to approach different parts, different faces from different parts of the world. And it's not just about even someone's facial structure. It could be about, you know, cultural influences or what's considered beautiful in different parts of the world because that's as much, well, that's as important as the actual physical limitations or, or nuances that people have to their face and their structure. Yeah, definitely. So Felix, what, what's your clinic like? What, you know, who's your typical patient? Is it mainly Asian? Do you see, you know, expats? Because, you know, there's a lot of expats in Singapore. How does it work? Yeah, they, first and foremost, I got to say, I agree so much with what David just said. It's not just the diversity in the faces, the structure, it's the diversity in their idea of aesthetics. It's so different in, in every part of, of, of Asia and within a single country, like you mentioned China, China's huge, you know, and, and in different parts of China, you get very, very differing patient types and patient expectations. Yeah, and, and like you said, Singapore is a, it's a very cosmopolitan city. We are, we are predominantly Chinese, but there is a lot of, influence so structurally we're chinese right but our our minds are influenced by um traditional asian values and as well as western modern kind of like um ideas and 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 we do see that in our in our patients today i'll say in my practice the the majority of patients are still the middle-aged chinese person <laughs> as, as as you were mentioning it's uh it's the vast majority of what we do, and that could be shaped a little bit because we are, as I mentioned, we do we do non-surgical facelifts more than anything else. So the the age group of patients are more or less in the thirties, forties, early fifties, and um, we see patients from every ethnic group. To be honest, including um, uh, um expats living in Singapore, so this is where we get our Caucasian patients, but the majority of them are still local Chinese and of the age group. Yeah. Perfect. So I don't know if you can tackle this one because I don't want to. What do we even mean by Asian patients? Like, what yeah. area does that cover? Yeah, it's 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 a hard question. I think I think um, you you sent me this 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 infographic a couple of days ago. I thought that was great. I thought that was great. Um, where 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 we split faces into those from the north side of China, those from the south side of China, and in Southeast Asia, where it's where it's uh, kind of different because we have. People from Indonesian descent, Malaysian descent, and uh, the faces are just very, very different. Mm. I think I think Asian is just such a diverse kind of like word, and 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 um, it's nice that we've taken out Middle East, 
Indian. So because they are, they have very, very unique structures and needs as well. So I, th- I guess we're still talking about the more kind of like Chinese descent, um, where we are, uh, which, which I think to, 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 to maybe a Caucasian injector, that's also more of the Asian patients that, that you see. Someone of Chinese descent, someone with, um, with a, let, let's say a smaller eyes, a flatter like bone structure, flatter nose, um, smaller retrusive chin, and um, maybe a stronger masita. Actually, that that overall face shape, I think it's more typically Asian. But but it's such a difficult thing because it's it is a generalization. Um, Asia is massive. Yeah, yeah. You, you, I watched uh, a couple of good lectures at A twenty three last week it was and um that infographic that i sent you i'll I'll put it up on um our podcast descriptions if i can and we'll definitely give it to our patrons but it broke down the asian population into you know through very big stereotypes but like you said chinese um sort of south asia i guess and then southeast asia and the stereotype i guess from a a non-asian injector's perspective is that like you said the face tends to be wider broader stronger cheekbones but maybe centrally so the forehead nose and and obviously the middle of the cheek tends to be flatter so the relevance of that is that gives you sort of potential different targets to treat that people might culturally or aesthetically want to treat Um, and if you don't understand that as an injector and you broaden an already broad face i don't think your patient's going to be very happy is that is that fair Oh, it's absolutely true. Because they use this really funny term. Um, the the lecturer he said that culturally Asians, and again he used the word very loosely, want they 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 see a small face as beautiful. What does that mean? I think I think it means more of a tight face, a face that's not sagging and everything's tight and compact together, right. rather than it being physically actually small. Right. Okay. Fair enough. You know, because like you said, if you have a small chin, which is quite common in you know Asian patients, why would you treat that if it's already small and a small face is considered beautiful? Mm. That that's something I couldn't understand. Yeah, I think in in terms of that, why why chin augmentation is really popular in Asia is because uh, two reasons. Firstly, a small chin gives you little support to the areas around the chin, mm. and and jowls and marionette lines is something that always uh, stands out as the sort of like the sign of sagginess. So that's that. And the second thing is, I think when you lengthen the chin, it proportionately makes the face look slimmer, mm. slimmer rather than smaller. And I think looking slim is uh, once again, a very, something that every Asian patient would, would, would desire. Yeah. Well, that, it seems like they, they use toxins to slim more parts of the body, not in the face. They target you know, calf muscles because I know that like, some Asian populations can be... <clears throat> you know commonly have larger calf muscles they get their traps done as well and they seem to be very big on treating the masseters to sort of slim slim the face down so what what's what's influencing or driving this is this something that's come from within the asian culture or is this purely as a result of western culture's domination sort of around the world with you know tv shows like the kardashians and hollywood and all those sorts of influences is that what's driving this sort of want and and desire from Asian patients, or is this something that's intrinsically already there? Oh, I think I think it's it's cultural in the sense that uh, media plays a big role. I don't think many Asians want to look like the Kardashians per se, <laughs> but they want, <laughs> but they want, <laughs> but they want to look like K-pop stars. You know, yeah. girls like Blackpink and all that. 
um long slim limbs and uh slim face that 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 sort of aesthetic you know do do you think it's true that and you know let's reflect on another population we've got a lot of persian friends yeah. and you know we're jewish or i'm jewish and and you know if you have a bigger nose you tend to not want it you you almost want what you don't have yeah. and so is it sort of similar where if you're if you're typically broader with big masseters and larger cheekbones that sort of intuitively you want to change that i, I don't know this is a this is an interesting thing I, my my take on it is that i think maybe in a 10 or 20 years ago when aesthetics was just um, coming to Asia, a lot of people wanted to look more westernized. So they wanted um, higher noses, fuller lips, you know, stronger chin because they wanted to look more westernized because the stars they saw on TV back then were western stars, Hollywood mm. stars, right? And and over the years, this kind of changed and now people are more uh, sort of like they want to look beautiful in their own identity so they start identifying with Asian stars like like your, your K-pop idols or your Hong Kong movie stars Chinese stars nowadays and uh, it's made the aesthetic become more inherently Asian than it was before when, when you weren't trying to look younger or more beautiful you were actually trying to look more Western mm, Interesting yeah. so, so who are like the Kardashian equivalents in, say, China. Who's driving the the trends at the moment for younger Asian girls? Well, if you talk about China, I, I would say the biggest star, uh, at least looks wise nowadays. I'm not. I'm not from China, so I, I, I think I'm not the authority on this. But if I've heard of them from here, they must be big, right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, there is this girl called Dili Rupa. You can you can check her out. She's gorgeous. Um, and she is kind of different from the previous like. This other girl, Angela Baby, who everybody wanted to be like. Right. Now, Angela Baby is very, very uh, perfectly beautiful, right? Her her proportions and everything, it's just what... If, if you told somebody, draw a beautiful person, that, that would be it, right? But this Dili Rupa is a little bit different because she still carries her, her um, sort of like her ethnic uniqueness and i think that's what um identifies with the with the younger people nowadays i've just got a picture up of angela baby because i have to admit i've never heard of her um she looks young uh, how, how old is she i don't think she's that young <laughs> i'm well, not so sure well maybe these are old photos who knows but she is beautiful <laughs> yeah that, that's she angela is. baby yes guys uh <laughs> we'll see if we can put a link to angela baby <laughs> at the bottom of the description um but yeah okay fair enough so so why i mean wh what about her were people aspiring to she looks definitely young but she looks slim she's definitely doesn't have a wide mass of her she's got a presumably a, a maybe augmented chin so it looks a little bit more pointy but you know no, his nose is quite narrow yeah and, and and she does have a nasal bridge so do you think that's real or 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 has she had treatment wow i mean you don't know right it's yours <laughs> <laughs> they they think the thing about about sort of like commenting on on celebrity faces is we don't actually see them in person yeah so so we, we see a lot of like photos images of them so i can't really be sure but I, I think the general aesthetic back then right was this flawless perfect look mm. whereas whereas um for for as 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 as, as we kind of like progressed over the years it we are more and more it shifted towards a more individual kind of beauty um which which is why i brought up the the other china star that that um who, who just looks more ethnic more herself 
but still very beautiful. And I think I think that's what people are embracing nowadays. Okay. So you said, obviously, you're not from China. I know you're not from China. You're in Singapore. So who's who's driving trends there and what's different when you reflect on, yeah. say, mainland Asia? So when I when I went to China for a tour for Allegan, um, we, we basically go to every city to speak. Hmm. So we give like the big talks in maybe Shanghai or Beijing. And after that, we go to every city and, and, and train in that city. And in that moment, I realized a few really, really interesting things. Well, first and foremost is that China is huge and diverse. Hmm. Every city has their own sort of like um, facial structures. And they also have their own sort of um, facial aesthetics. And I thought, one really, really cool thing that I realized is that, um, what, like, like what David mentioned just now, in, in a city like, say, Beijing, which is more closed, right? Um, th- everybody has a very uniform desire. You know, like, this is what I want to look like. This is, this is looking good. But in a city like Shenzhen, which is a port city, it's a trading hub, where you get influences from every part of the world, mm. um, Western and Eastern, be, no, faces are more diverse. And the, the sort of like ideal of beauty is also much more diverse mm. because now they have all these Western ideals. They have, they, they, and, and, and they just think very, very differently. So China's like just huge. And the other inter- interesting thing about China is that in general, at least in Singapore, Singapore's a very conservative society. In general, the, the, they sort of like push towards aesthetics or like this ideal of beauty either comes from the patient herself or it comes from the doctor. Right. Um, but in China, there's a third like force in place there is the influencer and these influencers are huge these influencers are many times bigger than stars you know like traditional media stars movie stars they, they're huge and they and the stuff they say will actually bring to action change in mm. a lot of people who follow them and i and i think that that's that's kind of interesting because because um in, in, in China, if, if the doctor said, I think you should do this, but you've read, I mean, if you saw on their social media, this influencer saying, well, maybe that, chances are you listen to the, to the influencer. Right. Interesting. That's yeah. fascinating. I, I had no idea that there was such an influencer culture over, over in Asia. I thought it was something only we were sort of, because <laughs> they've come under a lot of attack and scrutiny recently, and we've got some regulations that have come into place with social media and so a lot of these influencers have had their influence curtailed by by regulations and yeah so yeah it's actually quite surprising do you know what my little red book is no uh, no felix will know you can explain it better but my understanding it's an app where people like the public but but obviously influencers will you know maybe sort of leave a testimonial for say felix's clinic and that has massive power because it, it's almost like um I guess like the trip advisor of yeah. stuff, yeah. but but driven by influencers. Yeah. And so, you know, th- that's rather than being on, say, TikTok or Instagram, my little red book is big. So have I explained that well, or is that a really yes, bad? Yes, yes, you have. I, I can tell you that in, in, in um, if we're talking about China still, there there is not so much the 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 clinics, but rather hospitals. These are like buildings with like six or eight stories. They are, they have aesthetics, dermatology, plastic surgery, dental, everything in a, in a single building. And, and there is usually a floor, an office, right? For the back end guys to work. There are like teams, entire teams dedicated to the literate book. Wow. Jeez. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> we don't have it here yet. Well, it's here, but Not you big. know, unless you're Using the app, you, you'd never know about it, obviously. Yeah. Okay. Um, I've had I've had some of my Asian patients encourage me to be on there, and I'm like, well, how am I going to like 
run it. I can't, yeah. <laughs> I can't write Chinese. Yeah. The, to, to, make, to, 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 to give you some relief, like David mentioned, China is regulating the literate book, which, which means, uh, which means um, words like the translation of, say, Botox or fillers, they, they either are completely banned or oh. they get down regulated in the algorithm so they do they do not want all this sort of like medical stuff to be to be commercialized or advertised upon on the platforms but you see when it comes to an influencer it's really really hard to control that Mm. Yeah, right. I'd say an interesting thing and I don't know if you can confirm that this is true I maybe a few years ago was I was offered an opportunity to go to China and work but also train other Chinese doctors obviously how to inject and they said it'd be really easy. And I was like, okay, fair enough, because obviously I can't converse with the patients. And they said, well, the way it works commonly in China is the patient goes in, has a list of like a shopping list of what they want, and then they liaise with what they call a consultant, which isn't a doctor. It's like a salesperson, really. And then the salesperson comes in with a piece of paper, gives it to the doctor and says, this is what you're doing today. <laughs> it seemed very strange, like very patient-led, like you said. And I mean for various reasons but that was the main reason i said this is not what this is not medicine it's not how i work mm. but is, is that true and 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 if so what do you think about that i think I, unfortunately it's absolutely true it's absolutely true but the good thing is that um that's changing that's changing um I'm, I'm, when i'm physically in china i can see that that's changing previously the patient would buy the treatment before she's even consulted the doctor yeah. and, and i'm not saying this for all hospitals but there are definitely a lot of hospitals that are, that are like that so the patient comes in it's almost like with a with a with a receipt you know yes. 10 syringes of voluma six syringes of volift and then you inject that yeah. based on what she wants um it was like this right and but i can see now that this trend is changing i think they the, the the big guys behind these big hospitals in China they understand that this 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 is changing because previously previously the patients would recognize the brand they're going not to see Dr Felix they're going there to see Clinic A Clinic A is what guarantees them a good outcome you see but after a while as 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 time went by more and more the patient is there for the doctor they trust that doctor's skills they trust that doctor's expertise um they've maybe had heard good things good reviews about this doctor they are there to see him and so. Obviously, they want this doctor to make the diagnosis and through that diagnosis prescribe a treatment that that, that she can choose. And um, that's that's definitely what's happening in China. In the currently, I, th- I think for the for the change to complete, it will take years. Mm. But um, it's they there are more and more clinics now in China than there were before, and the hospitals are really feeling the heat in that in that sense. Yeah. Right. Well, when I tried to explore it, and obviously I won't mention who invited me to go, but they were a wealthy individual, so they weren't a doctor, but they owned the hospital. And the way he explained it, and it, I guess it makes sense, is he said, because China's had such a rapid um, economic growth that really, you know, at least at the start of this, the, the treatments were really just a, a status symbol. It mm. showed you had money and you could buy stuff. It didn't really matter how it went in as long as you got it. Or how it looked. Yeah, or well, presumably <laughs> you want to look good. But yeah, so it was almost like if you can afford, like you said, 10 mils of Voluma, that is your status. And, and, and obviously you find a good doctor to be able to use that somehow. But very weird, very backwards, I, I, I thought. Yeah, back then, I wouldn't even say. I mean, what you just described, I wouldn't even say China is is the is the example for this. There is another country where you're you're literally wearing that filler on your face to show 
this is how rich I am, you know? It's like bringing an expensive bag around. But uh, that brings us sort of nicely into, into I think, um, sort of like the Asian patient's perspective or expectation of aesthetics nowadays. Um, you know, that this this thing has completely changed. Uh, when, when I see a patient, in my clinic at least, and, and I counsel them for a treatment and I tell them the possible the upsides, the downsides, the, the barrier to treatment, right, it is rarely risk, unfortunately. It is rarely cost. Usually, the patient will bring out a photo of on Instagram and says, this is my friend and I don't want to look like her. Mm. I met her at a party. She can't smile. Uh, and this, this celebrity, I, I don't want to look like her. Because um, times have changed to the point where by now, nobody wants to look like they've got anything done. Yeah. So if, if they had a priority, it would probably be um, looking good, looking old, and looking done. So looking done is more worse than looking old to, to most people nowadays. And I think the sweet spot now is you wanna you wanna do treatments that kind of like keep you in that state that you feel like you're in. You know, you feel young, you feel energetic, your face not showing that. They want they want the treatments done to keep them in that in that in that state. You know, mm. and and and. And uh, not to look done as 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 before when we were wearing twenty forty cc of, of fat <laughs> in our cheeks. <laughs> well, it's good to know you guys went through that cycle as well because mm. we've certainly had it here in Australia, and it's kind of seemingly still going in in little pockets in certain patients. But yeah, there's been big pushback even from injectors to say, you know what, I'm not doing this anymore. Mm. Um, and, you know, you can argue whether filler migration is real or not, but we obviously know fillers last a lot longer through some of the studies and MRIs and ultrasounds. So I think we've sort of learnt just, just as an art that, you know, we've pushed things too far and now we need to get clever about how we mm. use these tools. What, what, yep. do you, what do you think the ratio would be between patients that come to you who want to look enhanced, who want to change their appearance while still maintaining looking natural and not done versus people that just want to look less old? In my clinic, I would say it's um, probably half and half. If not, right. it leans towards the people who want to look less old. But the thing is, um, as I always tell my patients, I feel like regardless you start with the treatments that help you look less old. Because just by looking less old, less tired, less saggy, oftentimes you look more attractive, younger, more energetic. You might you might look slimmer. You might look more contoured. And if that already satisfies your need to look more beautiful, you're done. See you in a year, right? And if on this point, you want to now look more attractive and, and, um, and, um, you want to look more attractive by having bigger eyes, or you want to look more attractive by having a more contoured jawline, a better facial proportion, then we can put those bits on for you onto the face that is already younger and less saggy. And I just find that um, wherever, whatever their pursuit is, less old or more beautiful, we, we kind of start off from the same from the same place anyway. Yeah. I don't know if you know much about Korea. Um, I'm going in about a month's time, so I'm really interested to see it. But obviously there, it's really famous for sort of being transformational in terms of some of the changes that people have. And there, I guess it's, you know, within the culture that, you know, after your 16th birthday, you very routinely go and get your nose done or have double eyelid surgery or or something obvious. And And there it almost seems like if you don't do it, you're the weirdo. So where does that culture come from? Why why is that aspiration so normal? 
I have to say, Jack, you know a lot more about Asia than you, than you <laughs> let off. <laughs> See? Yeah, okay. So this this is this is an interesting thing in two in two topics. The first the first I would talk about is uh they did a survey on how much mo- how much of your salary do you spend on something and in terms of proportions. Or well, in, in Korea, it's huge to do plastic surgery. Mm. So the amount of money you spend on plastic surgery is a large portion of of, of your income versus let's say if you went to Japan, plastic surgery is like a tiny amount and the big bulk is on skincare. Mm. And if you went to, say, uh, Singapore, uh, you have litter in plastic surgery, litter in skincare, you have more on aesthetic treatments, lasers, injectables. So I think think that's a really interesting thing to begin with. In Korea, the sort of like that push actually comes from the fact that they aren't trying to look more beautiful for the sake of being beautiful or being confident. In in, in, in Korea, they, they, uh, after your 18th birthday or, or, or you graduate, a lot of times it's not just that you want to go do this. Your parents are actually sponsoring you this. This is your 18th birthday present. Right. And the purpose of this nose or this double eyelid is not to make you more beautiful. It's to make you more competitive. Mm. So it makes you, it, it, they believe that um, looking better gives you a better chance at getting a good job, gives you a better chance at getting a good um, husband or wife. And the purpose of pursuing beauty and transformational beauty, as, as you mentioned, is really not for the sake of beauty, but for the sake of competitiveness. And that's a very unique culture as well. They want to get, they want to get the kids out of the house. <laughs> yep. Actually, yep. I was speaking to a, a, an Asian patient yesterday, and and we spoke a little bit about this, which is how I know I didn't know all of this. I, I did do some research, and she said that um, I never thought about this, but obviously, a lot of countries like maybe Korea or pockets of China, they're very um, well, they're non mixed. It's just Koreans, you know, or, or locals, should I say, and so. It, it gives you that competitive edge to stand out from the crowd, I guess, if, if if you want to put it in layman's terms. So, you know, whereas here in Australia, it's very multi-ethnic, multi-cultured. You sort of stand out, I guess, just because you're from England or whatever. Whereas there, if it's just Koreans in Seoul, maybe, you know, I, I can sort of understand the mentality you want to change mm, in a way. Point of difference. Yeah, yeah. it gives you a point of difference. Um, fair enough. So what are some of the common things that your patients come in and ask for? We've touched on some of them, but maybe we break it down into filler requests first, and maybe we break it down into, you know, different parts of the face. I think, I think the, the, as I was mentioning, everyone starts off from the same sort of way. And to me, it's like this, every, every face is different, right? To make beauty is different in every eye and every face is inherently different but um, everyone's face ages in more or less the same way so we always start with with lifting with support we want to get you less tired less saggy we want to make your face more contoured tighter and and that is enough for a lot of patients. And I will say that it's the bulk of, 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 of the work we do. Um, we call it the Felix's signature facelift. It's just a it's just a selection of quotes that basically do this purpose. And after that, we start to treat things that may be in, in the context of this podcast, Asian needs, right? So look at me. I have terribly small eyes, so, um, which is fine for guys. I think guys get it easy in general. But for the ladies, we want the eyes to look bigger, mm-hmm. right? So before... And 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 um, before plastic surgery, because as as I mentioned, Asia is still more conservative. At least this part of Asia is more conservative. People want to look at um, non-surgical options to make their eyes appear bigger, perhaps. And um, 
that, that would maybe be fillers around the eyes, whether we're talking about temples, roof, behind the oculars, oculi, into the tear trial, cheekbones, cheeks, all, all of this stuff um, working together to give the eyes a bigger, brighter appearance. I think that's that's one. Mm. The next thing I would do would be uh, more commonly would be in the, in the lower face. Uh, once again, it's a typical Asian thing. We have smaller chins and a lot of times these chins are sort of like back pointing. So they're small and, 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 and kind of like, just backward. So now we, we want to project the chin. We're going to give it length and projection. Um, and uh, at the same time, we don't want to give a pointy little witch's chin, which is just very non-aesthetic. So now we're working on the jawline as a whole um, to, to kind of like, it's not so much to project the chin, but to kind of give the entire lower face contour something more um, smooth. So it's not broken. It's like a smooth contour from chin to ear. And that also fits in very nicely with uh, with Asian aesthetic. I think this was a study done a couple of years ago whereby they got nine different face shapes and got non-medical people, large number of them to vote. What's the most beautiful face shape? And I think about 60% voted for the oval shape or the reverse egg. And in general, um, lifting or lower face augmentation tends to help you get towards that towards that general ideal. Mm. Um, we spoke a little bit about sort of the face and small face and, and cultural sort of likes and things. Is it true as a generality, I'm, I'm sure there's different likes everywhere and each patient's different, but I was always taught um, for Asian and also for Middle Eastern patients, they don't tend to like to see any light and dark sort of contrast. They like to have what they call a moon face where it's just sort of homogenous. They don't like angles. Whereas, you know, your typical Caucasian patient, they like structure, cheekbones, defined jawline, and, and that sexy sort of hollow is, is desirable. So is that true? Absolutely true. Absolutely true. But once again, as I mentioned, it's just really diverse. So there is that Caucasian aesthetic, right? Um, angles, lines. Basically, I, I feel that the aesthetic is nice, kind of like the Angelina Jolie look, because the highlights are even more highlighted by the shadows. Yeah. And that gives structure and, and shape. And then there is this very traditional, what 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 they call, call it, it's not really a moon phase. The moon phase is kind of negative. They yeah. call it the baby face. Right. So the the idea of the baby face is that there are no hollows from cheekbone to mid face to nice little before. The entire thing is one smooth curve. But the problem is when you kind of overdo that, it goes into this other word that they use in China called looking like a bun. <laughs> Do you guys have buns? <laughs> yeah. A, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Ch Chinese buns, right? So, so, so. <laughs> Where we are now, I think, in Singapore is we're right in the middle. Mm. We're right in the middle. Um, the, the, we kind of we, we kind of respect the need for the face to have its original structure, and we understand the need for this smooth, perfect um, sort of skin. So we're kind of in the middle when when we work on this. But it also depends on where in China, I mean, where in Asia, and uh, the particular patient you're talking to, whether they're leaning more Western, more Eastern, but. The sweet spot is somewhere in the middle. But this really becomes interesting when it comes to men, actually. This really becomes interesting when it comes to men because in general, in general, when we age, our faces kind of sag and, and the fat moves down and out. So it kind of broadens it. So any treatment that we do that lifts this face is going to move the face in and up. So in general, you're getting that oval ideal, right? Mm. But as we know for men, that may make you look less masculine right? Less, less powerful, less authoritative. And interestingly in Asia, there are two kinds of demands for male aesthetics. There are those who want that oval-shaped look, that 
that sharper, more new, gender neutral look. And then there are the men who want that very strong, powerful look. And, and uh, that's, that's another interesting point to explore. Right. So in terms of your assessment process, can you just take us through how you sort of assess your typical patient face? And then maybe we can lead on to, you know, some advice for potentially injectors outside of Asia who encounter uh, Asian patients, because we've got a, a huge Asian population here in Australia from not just China, but from Japan, Thailand, you know, they're all over the place. So it'd be good to get some pointers from you, maybe some advice on how they should be assessing a typical uh, Asian face. I guess maybe I can't use the word typical, but maybe some of the more, the more common faces that you would encounter and just to help them assess and treat them more effectively and more in line with what their aesthetic goals are. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm guessing this has been said to death, so I'll go uh, through the first part sure. quite quickly. Um, I feel like before we do any treatment for any face, we are always trying to make the face appear younger. So uh, we're, we want the face to look less saggy, less tired, overall lifted. And I think I think that's that's the first step, regardless. And after that, I in my practice, I, I, I frequently do this. Tell me about um, the treatments you've done before. Mm. And then when, when they tell me, I've done this, I've done this, and I'm like, okay, can you tell me if this treatment satisfied you or it did not because sometimes they will say i i've injected profilo i it did nothing for me now to me that does profilo obviously does its work it, it gives you skin hydration it gives you better smoother skin but when the patient says it does nothing for me it tells me that skin hydration isn't what she's looking for right so if if i say what have you done before i've done i've done too much it was really good for a few years and in recent years, it's I really don't see any difference. So it tells me that skin tightening is a priority for this patient, but skin tightening may alone may not fulfill all her aesthetic goals anymore. And now we have to look at something else. So I think going through like what they've done before gives me a good idea as to what she wants mm-hmm. and what has satisfied her before and what she thinks is not enough. And we try to kind of like fill that gap. The other thing would be the standard, um, if you don't, disregard the treatment, the actual treatment. Just tell me three things you would change on your face, right? And I find if the patient tells me three things that are related to aging, so I want to improve my nasal labial folds, I want to improve my marionette lines, my jowls, this is easy. This is easy because we're confident, right, with what we do to lift the face, to improve all these signs. And I feel like nowadays as injectors, we have to kind of look beyond how our patients look like immediately after treatment, as well as how they look like a week or a month after treatment, but rather how like a year after treatment. And I think this whole, you know, like like Jake was saying, lifting is like a dirty word. When you say the word lifting, everybody's going to argue with you. Does it? Does it not? How could it? You know, but... The, I thought COVID gave us a really wonderful lesson in the sense that um, in Singapore, we stopped all aesthetic uh, treatments during during the, the period. So when the patients came back, they were two or two and a half years away from their last injection. And it was really interesting to observe that all of them still looked better than before. Mm. So there, there are many ways to, to explain this. Uh, as, as, as we've been saying, the fillers may last a lot longer than we think they do. You know, there may be an element of scarring, fibrosis that's keeping the lift there. But I just feel like um, when you do fillers in a certain way, the shape and structure and volume of the filler isn't the result. So like if, if, if we injected a lip, the, the filler itself is the result. So when the filler's gone, the result's gone, we do it again. 
right? But when we do fillers in a certain way, I postulate that the, the filler is not the result, right? Because uh, the, you see the results in a lot of parts of the face that the filler was not injected in. So then it could be the movement of the fat under the skin or the movement of the skin by the filler that is showing you that aesthetic change. And if that's the case, that result may be something that lasts longer than the longevity of filler itself. Mm. So I think no matter what, right, we always start with that. But if the patient comes in and her three main goals are not related to aging, right? I want to have fuller forehead. I want to have um, thicker, um, I mean, like a higher nose. Uh, then we kind of explain that we want to first make your face look young, uh, make your face look sort of like uh, attractive, right? Then we will give you that sort of differentiating factor, that highlight that you want because it's going to look weird to have a high, sharp nose on a saggy face. And, mm. and sometimes it's easy to communicate this true to the patient, sometimes it isn't. But I think that kind of aesthetics is one of these this work whereby it's inherently subjective it's inherently service orientated the most important thing in our job i think is not to create the best results but to create patient satisfaction right but the issue here is that the patient may not actually know what's best for her so we got to kind of like marry the science of what we know with the art of listening to what she wants and and bring it together to deliver that 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 kind of final result it's uh, really nice to hear someone who basically does the same as me. <laughs> like, I can tell you've done the MD codes, basically, because, you know, what, what you're saying for, for listeners who haven't done the MD codes is you're you're listening to the patient's wants, but you're kind of steering them in a, in a nice way to their needs rather than just doing what they want, because yeah. they can look weird. Yeah. yeah. It, it, you know, if we do exactly what they say, and, and going back to that Chinese consulting model you sort of just get a smorgasbord of weird stuff on a face and it just looks it's like you're ordering, odd. it's like you're going to a mcdonald's drive through yeah <laughs> so this podcast is being listened to by people all over the world um predominantly our, our major listeners are in australia united states europe uk and so we've got very multicultural societies a lot of asian immigration and multi you know many generations of asians have now sort of moved in and had children and we've got you know <laughs> asian australians but they still got the genetic the genetic uh, background and they, and they still present as asian physically and so a lot of them get lost when it comes to treating people not just asian people people from from different ethnicities who they haven't seen in their training before they haven't had a lot of experience with and they're presented with this patient and quite often they can become quite lost especially for new trainers or train oh, sorry new injectors or those that don't have a lot of experience so as an asian injector and a thought leader how, what advice would you give to non-asian um, providers in treating an asian face who might feel a bit lost or, or, or not sure where to start to make sure they're you know, assessing correctly and then meeting the patient expectations and doing justice to, to, you know, to the facial structure and not trying to butcher it by trying to apply a Caucasian aesthetic to, to mm. an Asian face, for example. Right. So I think, I think um, primarily, as we were talking about just now, a lot of Asian faces are flatter towards the middle, right? So a lot of times the patients will come in with, with requests such as, I want to fill up my cheeks, you know, I want to have apple cheeks, mm. or like, you know, I want to I wanna improve my next labial force. I think these are very, very common requests. But what we must always remember is that when we volumize an area, we have to see how it affects the face as a whole. So if you think of the face as like a ball, when you inject in here, you're kind of like pulling it down. And when you inject out here, you're kind of like pulling it up. So there is that 
overall movement of the face to wherever you inject. So this comes, this becomes a problem because the Asian patients will point to you, I want volume here, I want volume here, I want volume here. And these are all sort of like weights. So on one hand, you want to make them happy. You want to give them the volume in the, in the places that sort of like smoothens the hollows. So it smoothens that transition between highlight and hollow, which makes mm. them look more baby-faced, younger. But at the same time, you want to remember to support, to support whatever uh, it's caused by aging and to support as well what you're injecting. So typically, if someone asks me to inject her cheek, for example, um, to, to, to give more apple cheeks, to give more fullness in the cheeks, I would first start with injecting the cheekbones, mm. start with injecting in front of the ear. So I give that lift and support. And then... I'm going to volumize the cheek and give a little bit of volume in a place which is sort of anatomically logical in, a, in an amount that is an, a, a anatomically logical, knowing that I have supported it from the side. And the same goes for uh, tear trials, eye bags. So before we inject, uh, before I inject in the, in the tear trial, I would always like to give support to the area through injecting the temples, the roof, beside the, I mean, be, be, below the orbiculus oculi to give support. And then I feel. And this um, sort of lo- sort of like reasoning goes down as well to the lower face, right? Marinette lines, it's a it's such a tricky thing because because the marinette line isn't or, or the next before for the method, it really isn't a line or a hollow. It's because the cheeks kind of like sagging onto it that's creating that line. So before I would consider filling any of this, I would always do this. So whether I'm injecting cheekbones, preauricular, whether I'm injecting jawline, I've always put support and then whatever hollow I have at the end, we'll fill it up. So just to translate, because you sort of went off mic there, Felix was basically saying start laterally to support that medial descent, nasolabial fold, etc., which I completely agree with. So, so in some ways, you know, treating all faces has, has a similar, I guess, chronology and stepwise process. But the worry is that you, if you're not careful, you could widen an already wide cheekbone. Um, but I think, you know, using small volumes you can actually make a face look slimmer, not wider. Yep. No, 100%. 100%. Yeah. The, the goal always is to make the face look smaller, in my opinion, yeah. than to make it bigger or puffier. Uh, in fact, I'm, 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 I have some, something I always say is that I feel like if you if we injected a patient and, 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 and the way we're talking about injecting, we're talking about a significant number of strangers, which means a significant budget for the mm. patient. There is, a, there is an expectation of improvement. So I feel like the sweet spot is if you took the before and the after photo, you have to see a big improvement. You have to see this patient definitely looks much younger in the after. But it's equally important that if you only had the after photo, you met this patient at the party after injection, you cannot tell in Mm. any way that the patient has been injected before. And I think this comes down to injecting anatomically in the sense that you could, I mean, the, 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 the ideal, of course, is to put stuff back where they came from rather than to create new stuff. But if you're creating new stuff, it has to be created in a way that is anatomically possible. It, mm. This person could have been born this way. It's possible rather than creating something that is completely impossible, yeah. <laughs> which I'm surprised you haven't asked me about. Like, <laughs> yeah. More the latest trends on the little... Well, we'll get there. We'll know. come to that. We'll get anyway. I was just, before we move on, I was just going to say, is there any sort of anatomical sort of nuances or, or things that people need to look out for or allow for. So for example, I know that's like typically Asians will have like a thicker a thicker dermis. 
And so does that impact your injecting technique in terms of depth, in terms of risk of things like occlusions? Or I'm, I'm just sort of talking more from a layperson's perspective um, or people that are, you know, still fairly new. Are there, are there sort of things that they need to allow for just in terms of not more the aesthetic but more the technical application? I think there are, there are, I can think of two things to this. The first is, as you mentioned, a thicker, more sebaceous derm is generally you want to, if you are trying to lift, uh, generally you want to choose a product that has a stronger cohesivity because this product is going to withstand the weight of all the tissue on it. So if you want it to move the tissue its way, it has to be able to withstand that weight without being crushed. Mm. So I think a product with a strong cohesivity would be, would be more ideal in such patients yep. versus say a Caucasian whose skin is more thinner, more sensitive. You may want to use a smoother, softer product um, to achieve sort of like the same result. But as it comes to nuances, I have, I, I'll, I'll say this in a way, I guess I'm Asian, so I can say this without being racist. All Asians have flat noses. Okay. Almost all. If you're excluding the Indians and Middle Easterns, in general, we have flat noses. And this leads to, a big problem in two ways in the sense that nose augmentation is one of the most commonly requested um, aesthetic procedures in, in, in patients when it comes to transformation. But at the same time, as we know, nose injections is one of the most dangerous places we could inject in mm. the face. And this comes with another problem. So let's, in, in, in the first place, um, injecting anywhere in this area will always come with that tiny but potentially catastrophic risk of blindness. And, and in Asia, where the demand is so high, you can imagine that this becomes a problem, a danger, right? And the second thing is, the in an Asian aesthetic, you don't just want the nose to be high. You want the nose to be slim. Mm. So if you're injecting filler and you're injecting very sensibly, a, a small amount, not too frequently, um, barring the dangers of blindness, of, 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 of vascular complications, you should be fine. But the problem is because the bone is flat, if you want to create that ideal nose that, that, that the patients want, then you may be injecting more, you may be injecting more frequently. And even if it is incredibly rare to get a vascular complication, it is incredibly common to see patients walking around with trunks, mm. trunks on their noses. <laughs> it, 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 it literally looks like a trunk yeah. because no matter how well you inject it, right, the filler will spread a little Right, even if you choose the filler with the best, like you know, structure, it will still spread a little. And when you do that many, many, many times, it tends to spread, and you get this trunk that makes the eyes look close together. And if you already have small eyes to begin with, that looks even worse. So, um, they when you inject an Asian patient's nose, you will get great feedback from her. She will be so satisfied, but you have to be really, really sensible in treating her this time and also every time for the rest of her life. Right. So and the filler migration? Uh, well, <laughs> don't, don't, it's not going for a walk. It it, it just just roll into spreads. the side, just it, rolling to the side of the bed. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, like Felix said earlier, like you know, when when the fresh filler goes in, there, there's a, I guess, a mechanical shaping to the tissue. But what happens after that is the filler has an influence on the tissue. It draws water. You maybe even get collagen and fibroblast stimulation. So yeah. something yeah. happens after that. Yeah. And so, you know, it's not just the filler that you're seeing. Yeah, but when you say it doesn't go for a walk, I mean, it doesn't really need to. You're talking about a nose, which you're talking about millimeter precision. I mean, you know, yeah. we've got good friends that are rhinoplasty surgeons and, 
you know, the difference between a good nose job and a bad nose job can be millimeters. Yeah. So yeah. it doesn't take much when you're dealing with that central part of the face where every millimeter can make such a huge difference. Yeah. Now, not to teach people how to do nose filler in a podcast, but what, <laughs> but. You, what yeah, let's do it. No, but what, what's your sort of preferred technique? Um, because, you know, there's a debate over using, you know, fine microboluses with a needle versus a cannula yeah. in, in a different plane. So what, what's your preferred technique? The non, the no, not going blind technique. Yeah, yeah, well, that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to be really, really honest and say that um, in all patients uh, for, for, that, that comes in for nose augmentation, I always give them the option, right, to go for rhinoplasty. Because yes. I just feel like... Um, it, this is not a matter of like turf, I want your business or not. I feel like the best and safest way to, to augment an agent nose is, is, is surgical. Yeah. The other option that, that it's, uh, that there, it's, it's, it's politically weird in Singapore right now, but, um, an option theoretically would be to do a tread lift in the nose. Right. Yeah. Um, so the, the tread lift is, is kind of, it, it kind of like solves both the problems I brought up earlier because on one hand, it won't broaden the nose and on the other hand, you can't go blind mm. from a tread lift. But it doesn't mean that tread lift is without complication. It does have, right? And and the other issue is that if you have tissue for... Because a tread lift works unlike a filler. It works by... It's kind of like molding the tissue you have there. But in some Asian noses where this part is entirely flat, there is nothing to mold. And, in, and, and if you persist in putting threads what you get is this really thin little tube over here that looks incredibly strange so um it's a it's a safe option for most people but but you have to be also careful of patient selection yeah um do you know anecdotally or maybe even you've got the data are, are there more blindnesses in that part of the world because you know probability you're just doing more noses more foreheads as well it's another big one I think the the issue with, with with blindness is that reporting the case can be something that's sensitive, and so we often get very uh, mm. unrealistic numbers. Yeah. the The truth is, I think that I I don't know what it is compared to to the rest of the world, but if, as you say, if you keep injecting in the nose, um, you will eventually run into this problem. But one good thing about Asians is that uh, unlike Caucasians, I, there is very little request to inject filler inside the sort of 11 lines Nicobella. Yeah. So that's, we, we kind of dodged that, but we're still injecting the notes. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but lots of foreheads as well, which is, again, it's not a common treatment that your average injector here in, you know, Sydney is doing for non-Asian patients. Um, you know, sometimes people need it, but in, in your sort of demand for for treatments i'm assuming it's a it's a ubiquitous thing everyone knows that they want a good forehead it's just culturally desirable whereas we don't have that really mm. here yes there are there are two kinds of uh, forehead demands one kind is for the forehead to protrude um i don't know if you know of this there are some chinese people who keep a certain type of fish it's an ornamental fish oh, the and it has a massive forehead oh, oh right okay no i don't <laughs> yeah. know that so 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 there is there is that demand which I think is uh, a trend which fortunately has kind of passed us by which is good hmm. um, and the other demand is for the forehead to just be flat because you know how when we age and there is like a hollow here yes and and just makes you look really old I think um I think that 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 filling that up so the whole thing is flat is is a very common demand in Asia yes and the other thing that we're mentioning is that. Um, Asians in general have small eyes, right? So, so it is easy for small eyes to look tired, mm. which means that if you are using botulinum toxin to treat forehead lines, there is a chance that you will actually 
sort of worsen that tired look in the eye. And a lot of times, if you treat the forehead with 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 whether filler or collagen stimulator, something volumizing, mm. you could improve the lines to such a way whereby you reduce or you totally take away the patient's need to do uh, Botox in the forehead. So I think there are a few reasons why forehead treatments are popular in Asia. But it is also worth noting that um, we never treat our patients' foreheads at session one. Um, because, because not because of risk or the risk is, is there, right? But um, but because if you're remember we were talking about how Asians have tiny chins, mm-hmm. and and if you have a saggy meat face and you have a tiny chin and you have a great forehead, that's just <laughs> weird. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's point. all about yeah, yeah, it's all about balance, balance and proportion. Yeah, yeah. Um, completely anecdote again. But how many mils might you use in a lower face? Because Again, you know, I train lots of injectors here in Australia. And I think your average, maybe beginner to intermediate injector, thinks that chin filler is just, you know, one injection <laughs> here in the middle of the chin. And, you know, you can kind of get away with it on someone who's got an okay-ish chin. They just want a little bit more projection. But what you're doing is you're building a lower face. It's quite different. And I think that some of our patients underestimate what's needed. So, you know, what, how, how might you do it and how many mils might you typically use? I'll say the most standard, uh, I would say it's five plus two. Why, why I say five plus two is because same reason as before, I'm not treating the chin if I haven't treated the cheekbone and the preauricular area. So this two is kind of like added onto it. Yeah. It has to be there. Whether it's there in this session or it was there before, it's got to be there first. Mm-hmm. And then in the chin itself, I'll go for five. Five, um, that split sort of like three and two. Three, Three syringes, the goal of these syringes is actually to sort of like um in 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 in, in the case of a of, of of all patients to kind of like replace bony loss. But yeah. in in Asian patients in particular is to create bony structure. Right. So three syringes in the jawline mainly to create bony structure. And two syringes sort of in the soft tissue, whether we're talking about the crease or we're talking about the, the, the soft tissue in the chin itself, um, generally to create shape. Mm-hmm. So I think two plus Three plus two is the is the general that's seven yeah. mils. Yeah, it's a lot. You yeah. know, your average patient's got to go. Whoa, that's yeah. a lot of money. And you do that. You do that all in one in one sitting, or do you sort of space that out over a number of treatments? Yeah, uh, for this one, I I, I would do it all, all in one sitting. Right. Uh, mainly because the product that I use, uh, there is some swelling involved. Right. So you want to counsel the patient for the swelling. You want to counsel the patient for downtime, and you, and you want it all at once, so it doesn't come like all the time so they kind of like plan it into their routine they're ready for this and in a week later they'll be it's all good yeah we've spoken a lot about filler let's just talk about toxin quickly um Mm. again i don't know if this is universal with asian patients but i have found the asian patients i treat they don't tolerate wrinkles very well even the most minor thing that they see they want it gone and i think that relates to you know they want perfect skin it's a really desirable thing to have good skin so if you see a wrinkle it kind of makes sense whereas yeah some of my caucasian patients there's lines everywhere and they'll focus on one line <laughs> it's kind of hilarious really when you think about it um so what 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 do you know your average patients that you see what do they want with their toxin you said bigger eyes but what about wrinkles yeah the the in, in fact right i would i would i would actually in my experience it's kind of different you know okay. because um 
my my expat patients are the ones who will come every four months on the dot, the correct date to get <laughs> their 64 units done. Yeah. Whereas Asian patients, they're lazier when it comes to toxins. So they come when they see the wrinkles come back. So this right. could be four months, could be six months, or the wrinkles could be back for a long time, but they just think it'll be fine. But, oh, it's it's my end of the year company dinner. I got to come here for Botox now. Right. So they're... they're are actually lazier than the expert patients I get. I think I, I think I think wrinkles at least at least I, I I feel like sometimes as doctors, especially in 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 practices like ours where our patients inherently trust us a lot, the, our own beliefs kind of shape them as well. Mm. And 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 to me, I I'm always like I feel like you should inject Botox only if the wrinkle troubles you. Because wrinkles are a normal part of a human face of expression. And it, and if, if it's making you look angry or sad or fierce, yeah, you should treat it. But if it's just there, there's no real need to treat it. And I, I feel like because I come across this way, my, my, my patients become like this after a while. But the expats, they will come four months on the dot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I want to ask you something interesting. You mentioned the dose of 64 units as being kind of a, a common pattern, I guess. So David used to own clinics and, and here in Australia, we very, very typically see uh, across the whole country, various packages of toxins sold to patients like advertised. And a common one is 40 units, 65. another one's about <laughs> 55. You're using 64, um, which I know is like the, the classic on label. So 20 glabella, 24 head, 12, 12 for each crow's feet. So do you actually do that? Is that common? No. <laughs> okay. See, see, I'm not, I'm, I'm not on, I'm not on the stage where I used to. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I, I can say this. I okay. Guess. So, 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 how does I, it work in Singapore then? Like, how, how is it sold? Uh, the, the, I think, I think the bulk of the, of the, of the difference that I make is really in the forehead, because um, twenty in the glabella, twelve, twelve in the crow's feet. It's on label. It's evidence based. It works well for almost everybody. I think, I think that's great, right? Yeah. The, 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 the issue is, is, is about the forehead. Um, once again, if we have poor support around the eyes mm. to begin with, I would actually start with filler treatments to support the eyes before even considering putting any toxin in the forehead. Yeah. Right. And, and that also brings us to lower, lower forehead lines. Low, uh, lower forehead lines, I would never inject it with conventional Botox in Asian patients because we need we need that eye opening so much. When yes. you have small eyes, you need this opening so much. And you you can't just weaken sort of like the only elevator of the brow. Mm. So now that leaves us with this bit, right? Um, I feel like in most of the time, I'll start with two, uh, the, the same M pattern but with two units in each spot. So I start with 10. Mm -hmm. And if the patient's satisfied, I'll just keep it to that. If the patient's like, I, 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 I've, I, it's improved, but I want it better, I would then go up to the 64. So for me, it's either 54 or 64, but I tend to start with the 54 and I find that that is enough to give satisfaction to the majority of patients without affecting their brows or their eyes. I reckon if you asked your average injector, mm. they would do the same, even here in Australia, around 10, maybe yeah. 12, maybe eight, but not 20. What do you think? I think, yeah, I think injectors are becoming a lot more conservative for the forehead treatment. Yeah. Because of just drop brows and ptosis risk and things like that. I don't know. It seems like that's it, the injectors that I talk to are very conscious of overdoing, overdoing the, the brow. And it's always something that's, I mean, Botox is easy to top up. I mean, you can come back in a couple of weeks and exactly. you can't take it out. So I think people, especially with, with new patients as well, that they don't know the so face, true. you know, some patients it might look, it might present like clinically looking fine, but that might, complaining of heaviness or they feel like they're struggling to keep their eyes open so sometimes it's not even something that just presents visually it's the way the patients respond to the to the treatment so i think that it's 
seems to be moving in, in a more sensible direction that people are being a lot more conservative with that area before they yeah. start going gung-ho with the tox in there. Yeah. What about lower face tox? Do you, do you sort of, I mean, we, we sort of mentioned uh, facial swimming with masseter treatments, but, you know, we did a, a really great episode with Dr. Michael Kane probably close to a year ago now. We're getting mm. close to that. And he, he was talking a lot about, you know, that's the, almost like the forgotten region. You know, everyone's just focused on those three key areas, but not really paying attention to what can be achieved with lower face. So things like Nefertiti lift and teaching the chin, the DAOs, even sort of, you know, venturing down to the neck region as well. So do you sort of have much of those sorts of treatments in, in, in your practice? Is that something that your Asian patients are looking for as well? I guess particularly the masseters, but those other areas? Yeah. So, so I think for, for masseters, it's very commonly requested in Asia. And I think this has to do with a little bit of a misunderstanding from what it was marketed as before. When it was marketed in Mandarin, um, it was it used to be called the slim face injection. Mm. So people think that by injecting a masita, your face becomes slimmer. But in reality, it does not. It becomes less square. So the the, the point of injecting a masita is, is, is really to make the face not like this, but like this. So right? from square so, to V-shaped for the people who can't see yes. this. Yep. Yes. So the, the goal is that that shape rather than slimming the face. Uh, so that's one of the things I got to get the patients to understand. But um, it's common for, it's popular for two reasons. Firstly, uh, a lot of Asians, because we naturally have very big masitas to support our small chins, uh, they, some people have a medical problem with it, with bruxism. They have a lot of problem with grinding, which just affects their sleep and, 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 and their energy the day. So we inject for bruxism very commonly. But um, other than that, the ones for aesthetics, the main thing is to sort of let them understand that, that we're taking the angle away from the jaw rather than making it smaller in any way. And if you do want the face to be of a certain shape, maybe you have to consider what we spoke of just now with the treatment in the chin and the jawline. Um, Nefertiti lift is... Uh, extremely popular in China. Right. I mm. feel like everybody goes for it like 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 more commonly than skin boosters or anything else, but uh, not so popular in Singapore. I think Singapore patients, as I mentioned, going to an aesthetic clinic is a thing like, oh my gosh, I'm going to get my face done. <laughs> it's safe. You know? So they generally want treatments that last a longer time, mm. which the Nefertiti lift does not. But in countries like China and Korea, whereby you go visit your aesthetic doctor like every month, it's an incredibly popular treatment. That's interesting. So what's your average dose for a masseter? You've got a new patient, never been treated before. What are you sort of starting with for a nice chunky masseter? If it's nice and chunky, I push it with my thumb and pushes my thumb all the way out. I would generally do at maximum 32 on each side. And I would not do less than eight on each side because I find like that's no real point to do less than eight for such a big muscle. So I would say between eight to 32. The the interesting thing about masseter injections is that I find like the, the muscle, it, it kind of needs to work to exercise, to build itself back. Mm. So if we injected, say, a, a big dose and, and the, the muscle strength and over the months you let it work you let, and it comes back nine months 12 months later you inject again with another big dose I find that kind of like less satisfying so what I generally do is I bring them back every four months mm -hmm. but every time they come back I inject a smaller dose so someone who started with 32 is eventually going to end with eight or zero right yeah that's interesting yeah I think um, yeah here traditionally maybe injectors don't do it as frequently well, you know, and then this comes down to all the conversations we've had around uh, resistance. And so people thinking that more common, you know, mm. there's, there's that debate. Is it higher doses? Is it 
smaller doses more frequently that sort of cause the body to create a, a resistance or an, is an antibody that they create to it? Or Yeah, like yeah. an autoantibody. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's mm, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, well, what I will say is I think a lot of injectors here who maybe don't see as many masseters as you won't be confident to treat, you know, say, temporalis or pterygoid. They'll just do the masseter. Whereas if someone's truly grinding, you could actually make it worse by just doing the masseter and ignoring all the other muscles. Mm. So... You know, just word of caution out there. If you're not sure what you're doing, just don't, don't just don't do it. <laughs> also, as, as well, I think that culturally, you know, there's a lot of women now who want that square jaw. You know, they want that more masculine jaw, and that's yeah. just a cultural shift. I think that's happened over the last five years or so. I mean, I've heard patients come into various clinics and say, "Give me the cash register drawer." They just want to look like, <laughs> you know, they want to look like Quagmire from the Family Guy. You know, they just. <laughs> they, I don't know if you guys have got that over there. Um, yeah, we do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so that seems to be culturally shifting as well. So I. I feel that's becoming less less popular, but that's just anecdotal from people I speak to. Well, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but um, at some <laughs> point, Masseter will become on-label. Okay. Uh, I won't give you a timescale. And so it's going to become not in again because it's already in but it's the, there'll be more focus on it being normal yeah. because it will be taught rather than done off label yep. um, and I think the doses will be similar to what Felix is doing to be completely honest yeah. so mm-hmm. yeah interesting I mean there's studies out there maybe we can find a study for you guys now let's talk about kind of a big cultural thing for Asian patients which is good skin and I think this is the clear difference between you know our patients are Australian sort of Caucasian patients that kind of almost ignore it often they want to be da- they want to be tanned they want to well they want to be tanned but they don't understand the implications of how terrible that is yeah. um so what why is skin so you know revered i guess with our asian patients i mean it looks beautiful but like why is it culturally important i think this is something that is like genetically imprinted into into us there is a old chinese saying uh, I don't know if, okay, I'll say the first half of it, right? First half is inoffensive. So no, the say, first say two halves. Are, are you going to say it in Mandarin or English? Yeah, we want Both. the Chinese one first. You want the Chinese one? Yeah. So the Chinese one says, san-chou, which means that if you're fair, it will cover all your flaws three times over. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> and this is ingrained, you know, in, 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 in the culture. Um, and the second half, unfortunately, but just for interest, it says, but if you're fat, it ruins everything. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Fair yeah. enough. Okay. So you see why we want to focus on the first part. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the so the 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 thankfully, thankfully, um the Asian patient of today, the modern patient, has moved away from the fair being the goal. Like mm. be, looking white being the goal. Um now what they want is I, th- I think it's also because of, of sort of like our cities becoming more diverse, mm-hmm. uh, more ethnically diverse. So now ev- every skin color is more or less seen as beautiful. Like you could be Chinese and really fair and people are, well, you're, you're traditional beauty, right? Or you could be Chinese and, 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 and tense and people will be like, you look really healthy, strong. The, what, what I think the goal is, right, is, um, evenness of that skin tone mm. so the, whatever color it is it is one even color across your entire face which means pigmentation blemishes wrinkles fine lines open pores they um these are the stuff that people really really don't want and um and uh i feel like with being being asian having more melanin in our skin we're kind of like more protected yeah. against 
sun damage it, as it is versus Caucasian. So we already have a better place to start. The problem is that um, being also more sebaceous, we tend to have more problems with acne, acne scarring that may or may not be able to be completely treated You know, as, as you get older. So so the, the gist is I think the goal now is not just to look fair, right? Um, because fair is revered for centuries if not you know yeah but uh yeah. nowadays i think whatever color you are it's beautiful the goal is to look um uniform perfect mm, yeah i think that that um the whole attractiveness to being fair i think goes back to just sort of the class system you know if you were wealthy you didn't work outside if you were fat you could afford food so being fat and white <laughs> was like <laughs> was attractive if you were tanned if you were tanned and thinned it meant you were of a lower class because you were physically having to work and you were out in the sun so i that's what i read i don't know it could be completely wrong but that's well according yeah. to felix's uh saying the fat part isn't good yeah okay so who knows but but you could still be right because the fat part is was added on subsequently. The original thing only had the first part. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Fair enough. So, in your clinic, where you're, you know, you're not doing surgery, um, what what sort of modalities of skin treatment do you guys have? And maybe break it down into, you know, lasers and devices versus injectables. Yeah. So I think I think uh, in terms of lasers, we have a pigment laser and we have a vascular laser so we kind of com combine yeah. them together so we're treating all the chromophores that we can get to mm -hmm. um the the pigment laser we use is picosha yep. i think there's one the main reason why we why we use picosha uh, other than the, the fact that it's very consistent in in, in pigmentation and complexion is also because um of that difference in absorption mm -hmm. for a 755 nanometer laser that generates iobs very consistently mm -hmm. so we can do a little bit of sort of like new collagenesis or uh, this promotion of new collagen and we get the skin that is smoother to see smoother to touch and i think actually because it holds water better it's probably more resilient to aging as well so i think that's that's one half of it the other half of what we do we use this device from denmark called advertex i'm not sure if it's there mm. in australia yeah. um great device it's a solid state yellow so it's a 589 nanometer that 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 produces energy very consistently so unlike the kind of like um say gas or liquid mm -hmm. medium ones whereby the energy that comes out is little or um it, it it gives a lot of energy in total but unlike a long pulse laser these energies don't come in spikes mm. so weakness therefore is you can't really treat stuff like telangiectasia port wine stains but for redness skin sensitivity acne it does fantastic so we kind of chose these two right because we we want to target the browns and the reds and they work together or mm. separately um to sort of like treat the majority of skin goals yeah. and when it comes to skin injectables i think uh in general in general not, not in our clinic but in general there are I, I think skin boosters really refer to everything mm. but um currently in asia there are many many types of skin boosters as you can imagine because as you said skin is such a revered thing so there's of course when there's a demand there's a there's a supply right so we have traditional skin boosters which is just non-cross-linked hjs right we have um long-lasting skin boosters which is slightly cross-link hjs mm -hmm. and then we have this thing from korea called rejuran mm, which is yeah. uh yeah derived from salmon sperm i think and uh and the goal of course is growth factors to stimulate um well repair anti-inflammation and and the generation of new collagen nowadays we have profilo profilo really is just a ha but um it's it's designed in a way that spreads on its own so instead of injecting like, like 100 injections for the whole face you're injecting just 10 so that's that and um of course the latest uh to come out is exosomes yes they 
Yeah, exosomes is one of these things that I think it's so new, but I do think that it is truly the future in terms of cell signaling. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know about Australia, but in Singapore, any product that comes from a human is never, ever going to be approved for yeah. injection. So uh, so then people are saying, if you just applied it, even if you absorb like 1% of it, it already kickstarts a cascade that gets this sort of like intended mechanisms going. You don't actually need all of it to work. But I just think that exosomes is one of these things that I do believe is the future, but we, we need to observe it much more closely before we say, yeah, mm. this is a good treatment mm. for everybody. Um, just quickly, we're just getting back to lasers for a second. I, I know that sort of in my experience with running clinics that had lasers, um, the patients that were always at risk of hyperpigmentation or unusual reactions um, was always your Asian patient because of, you know, more melanin and more sensitive. Um, so how do you sort of allow for that or, or sort of de-risk those laser treatments, especially when you're like hitting someone with a 755 or a 589 with the, the, you know, the is melanin? How, how, how do you sort of circumvent that risk or reduce it? Well, um, a few things. I think first and foremost, let's just get it out of the way. Consent is really important. <laughs> so we, we, we always consent for post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. Yeah. If, I'm, if I'm firing at 300 freckles, yeah. one of them is going to get PIH, right? And, yeah. and, 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 and the patients kind of accept that. You tell them it's kind of like a mark left behind by a pimple. It goes away by itself. It goes away quicker with treatment. So just letting them make that choice for themselves, mm-hmm. I think it's important. And if the pigment load is really too high, sometimes you can split the, in, instead of one session, you can do it in two. Yep. But usually I'll just let the patient decide on this based on her own risk profile. Um, what we do in our clinic to reduce the risk of PIH is many, many, many. I think um, the from 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 pre-treatment before the patient comes for the laser, we like to pre-treat the skin with vitamin C if possible. Yeah. I think and an, or any antioxidant really. Um, we we'll want we want the patient to keep the skin hydrated, sunblocked for the two at least two weeks before the before the laser treatment and at least two weeks after. And during the treatment itself, we use surface cooling. I think that's really, yep. really important. I think if you have a pigment laser and you're treating freckles, you have to invest in a surface cooler. It's like it's a Zima cheap. or something? Uh, yeah, Zima. Yeah, yeah. So we use like Cryo 6, but it, it really, you just have to have it. I just feel like, um, especially with Pico lasers nowadays, we aren't cooking and vaporizing the pigmentation, right? Mm. We are vibrating and shattering it. We don't need the heat. The heat is a byproduct, right? So, but yet yeah, the heat is what causes, I mean, pushes the risk of the PIH. So I think surface cooling is really, really important. And after lasers, um, two things. Number one would be post-laser creams. Yeah. I think uh, this this is this is something that I think everyone has no opinion on. You can use steroids, you can use hydroquinone, you can use a combination of both. Um, I we, What we do here is we do a combination of both, but we do both at very gentle doses. And we cover it with moisturizers. I think that's really, really important as well because of course, um, the faster you recover, the faster you cut the inflammation. Mm-hmm. And and uh, we advise the patient to stay out of the sun. Um, you know, it's really hot here in Singapore. So we advise them to stay out of the sun for at least a week. And by that, we mean strict sun avoidance. So when you cross the road, bring an umbrella, that, mm. that, that kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, yeah, in the end, in the end, I think PIH is a risk that you cannot avoid with when you're treating an Asian community with lasers, especially if you are treating superficial pigmentation yeah. like freckles or Horace Nevis. Yeah. Um, but uh, if you did all these, I would say the overall rate is not high. We okay. see maybe one or two a year at most, yeah. and 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 everyone is a darker kind of like pigmented skin. So I yeah. think I think I think we yeah. Okay, can I um wheel you back to Rajuran? That's why I'm going to Korea to go to the global symposium and learn about it. So, what is it like? Super briefly, and like how does that differ to say you know Profilo for example, like the results? Yeah. 
Ah, uh, now the the interesting thing about the results, at least profilo, if you do it on label, you do it the way they taught you, you are not injecting the forehead at all. Yes. And re- remember, we were talking about fine forehead lines and wrinkles. Um, so that poses a little bit of a problem, even though now Profilo is, is saying that we can inject the forehead, especially for cannula, for safety. And I think one of the reasons why it wasn't part of the equation to begin with is because rejuvenate is ideally injected intradermally. Yeah. So when you inject rejuvenate, you get a blap, mm-hmm. a, 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 a big visible blap. So this, the product is in the skin yeah. versus Profilo where the product is injected subdermally. So you kind of feel a little bump, but you don't really see a blap. So obviously you can imagine that injecting subdermally or subcutaneously with a sharp needle with HA um, leads to risk, especially in the forehead. So I think that may be the reason why Profilo never uh, thought forehead when they, when it, when it first came out. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, so um, the gist, the gist is Rejuvenate is not HA. It's really just, Salmon DNA, yeah, right? and uh, a lot of people do in mix it as a cocktail. So you would mix, let's say, Rejuran with a non-crosslinked HA with, say, a small amount of some Botox, or in countries where it's legal, things like chenexamic acid, depending on what you're trying to do for the patient, right. and inject it at once as a cocktail, right? Uh, oh, wait, a word of caution here: if you're if you're <laughs> not familiar with Rejuran, uh, fans of IA. Do not mix it with a crosslink HA. You cannot do that because uh, there, there's several reported cases of uh, lumpiness, right. and 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 these lumps is not the HA lump. It's uh, it's it's a uh, I don't know, you know. Okay. So 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 in general, just mix it with a non-crosslink HA. The I'm not entirely sure what the what the interaction is between Rejuan and BDDE, but there's just been more enough reported cases for mm. for for us to to not do that. Okay, good so, to yeah. know. Yeah, no cross-linking. <laughs> and, and so the result is, you know, it's better skin, right? It, it, it also helps healing. Uh, yes. There's no, well, unlike Profilo, because there's no HA, what's the hydration sort of capacity like? Or is it more for skin quality rather than hydration? In, interestingly, interestingly, I feel like if you do mix it with a HA, I kind of feel like it gives better results than Profilo because uh, skin hydration is one of those things that is... I mean, we can report it with 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 all sorts of devices, but really, what the patient feels is mm. the is the is the most important. And I think that patients generally have very very high satisfaction rates when it comes to well, both Rejuan and Profilo uh, injections. So, in general, how how do I choose in my clinic? Right, I feel like if you don't have dry skin or skin problem, you just want maintenance. I'll probably choose Profilo for you. It's easier. Yeah. Uh, but if you do have a lot of lines, your skin's dry, sensitive, you actually want to see a uh, Market improvement. I find Rejuan to be to be somewhat more consistent. Okay, but interesting. I think they're both good. I think they're both good. I'm excited. Great. Yeah, I'm looking forward. I'm uh, excited about the Rejuan. I'll yeah. be I'll be your your test case, Jake. No problem. Well, I might have some coming in the post soon. There you go. So there, there we go. go. It's, it's TJ approved, by the way. This isn't dodgy. <laughs> um, we've got just a few minutes left. Um, we've got a million mm-hmm. questions to ask, but I just want to ask you two or three other questions that we sort of traditionally mm. did with our Beauty of the World one. So what toxin brands do you have available in, well, at least Singapore, not Asia, but Singapore? Well, I think the three main brands would be Botox, Elegant Botox, Xiumin, and Dispot. Okay. No Latibo, no Nobota, no um, Daxify. They are the the, the um, I just want to say something wrong because there are some 
Korean toxins that are approved in Singapore, but I'm not exactly sure which ones. Okay. Ah, so are you implying there's a bit of a black market imported naughty products that sometimes come into the country? Well, it, it it's always been here. <laughs> it's, whether, right. whether it's uh, non-HSA approved, like um, authority approved, or whether it's parallel imported, it's always been here. But I think the, the key here really is to just go to a regulated clinic with yep. a reputable doctor. Yeah. And so doctors only injecting, no nurses? Yes. Okay. Yes. So so I gather, I think you told me when I last saw you, there's only about two or 300 injectors for the whole country. Is that correct? Probably. Oh, Jake's wow. on the move. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm moving. I'll be 301. <laughs> I'll just deal yeah. with all the expats. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, see if you like it here when you're here in September. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. No, exactly. You can go to work in shorts. There you go. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> this is, I don't know if you can answer this off the top of your head. What does it cost to, to buy Botox for, for you as the doctor? Like, I just want to get some idea of how expensive it is. Am I allowed to say this? Yeah, of course you can. Well, I think we're not listening. It's uh, 550 Singapore dollars, I think. All right, I'm going to work this out. That is, oh, that's expensive. For, and that's for you to buy. Yeah. But okay. this is, this is if, you bought, if you bought one bottle alone. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So if yeah. you bought, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, 629 Australian. That's yeah. freaking expensive. Yeah. You know, what, yeah. What is it in Australia? Well, you know, if it? you bought one box, it would be $555.71. Yeah. Um, so, but, uh, yeah, it's interesting. Diamond, red dragon. Well, I was going to say, <laughs> you know, you presumably you have a tiering or a volume-based, um, I guess, incentive in a way to buy more. So, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, anecdotally in America, fillers particularly are expensive. Mm, so we yeah. we've just sort of tried to contrast the various regions. What about for a mill of, you know, you don't have to name a brand, but a, a sort of a thick filler like a high G prime filler. What might that cost you for a box or a mill for you to buy? A single strange, I would say, if I averaged the cost of the top four brands, mm-hmm. probably between three hundred three fifty dollars, three fifty, three hundred three fifty. Okay, so yes, that's four hundred dollars for one mil cost price. That's that's exy. It is very exy. Yeah. So I mean, presumably you'd have to tell us your prices, but would you say that you know when you look at other prices around the world that Singapore you charge a lot because it's costs a lot for you to buy. Well, now that I have had a chance to travel around the world to teach, I realized that, and we have to take this offline, there's crazy stuff everywhere. <laughs> so Felix turns up with five ex- empty suitcases. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, I get to see Australia as well. So yeah, I'll see you on an episode of Border Security at some point. When <laughs> I, 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 again, I'm sure there's a lot of variability. I heard in China it's very expensive for, for filler, like you know, $2,000 a mil or something what? insane. Wow. Is that true? Let me let me do some math. It's not that crazy. But but expensive, right? Yes. Right. Yes. So <laughs> so maybe I move to China instead then. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> nice I, knowing you guys. I, I international. Yeah. Um, okay, fair enough. Well, look, we, we had a hundred other questions. Maybe we'll just end on a couple of business yeah, questions. Yeah, so I just asked a few business questions. Um, mm-hmm. I know you're a doctor, so if you can't answer them all. I'll, I'll forgive you. Um, so, you know, do you have any idea about the like approximate market size? So, you know, you said there's only 200 or so doctors performing aesthetic treatments. Like how, how what, you know, any idea about like patient numbers, like how many people are out there or your market penetration? Oh, I have no idea. I have no idea. The, what, what I can say to that is that, is that um, I feel like 
our practice is more or less shaped by the needs of our patients, right? Yeah. So initially, in Singapore, aesthetics was something that was hush-hush. You had to be yeah. a celebrity, a rich person, and you had to know people to do it. And over the, the last 10 years, it's become something that everybody wants to do now. Yeah. But everybody's... There's some barriers as to, as to, is this safe? Will it make me look weird? Will it make me look like a celebrity? And now, that's better now. And I feel like... Um, as the industry is evolving, we're getting more and more market penetration. But in terms of a number, I don't, okay. I don't really know. Okay, but I would, mm, I would just guess and say that it isn't as high as the other countries in Asia. Yeah. Okay. And in terms of the growth, you know, do you sort of have any? I, I mean, does it look like it's getting busier? Are you having less patients per provider, or there's still more patients than there are providers in terms of the demand? I mean, you've got like a six week waiting list or whatever. Um, yeah, <laughs> I mean, that'd be nice, right? Um, that'd but like, nice. yeah, what, what, what does that growth trajectory look like in, in your, in your opinion? Are you sort of quite positive that it's continued that, you know, the market penetration is going to continue to increase? I think, I think it, it kind of separate between my clinic and, and Singapore as a whole. Yeah. In, in, in my clinic, we, we work in such a way where, whereby we don't do marketing, we don't do advertising. So it's all word of mouth. Mm. So the growth is really steady, mm. right? It, it, it just Gross year on year, it just gets small. I guess to the point whereby my appointments are full and and we can't grow anymore. So I, I I think that's us. But Singapore as a whole, I do think that I do think that that market is actually growing, even though there are more and more clinics. Okay. So the the reason why I say that is because I think that acceptance to doing mm. an aesthetic treatment is becoming more and more prevalent in Singapore, and we're kind of like catching up with our neighbors in 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 that mm. sense. The flip side to this, of course, is that um and, and we spoke at the beginning about how. Um, education can be very non-formal or non-structured and we spoke about how um, non-doctors can open aesthetic clinics yeah. and so when it, when this becomes more prevalent and, and patients may go, go somewhere and get disappointed or go somewhere and get a complication so once again that affects sort of like that growth in, in, in a whole but I think if you just look at the bigger picture because most of us are doing good jobs the patients are just accepting this more and they are sort of like mm. opening themselves up to more and more sort of like ideas about mm. how to how to treat themselves better yeah mm. sure what do you think is the biggest challenge running your own practice well the biggest challenge I, I don't know I'm having so much fun <laughs> <laughs> I think I think I think um we just got a we just got a second doctor on board. She's a very very talented young lady. So um, of course, like 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 both of you, we, we spend a lot of time doing education. I think it's just a very like multifaceted job. And uh, nowadays, when 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 you see the patients, you know, it's it's I don't know if you guys feel this way, but the, five or six years ago, right when I first started injecting well, somewhat well, I was kind of like, wow, that's really really nice. And I'm really happy that's been difference to the patient the patient comes back i mean after the injection she feels a certain way she comes back she feels a certain way and you felt like you've made a positive impact to that person like all these years later until now i still feel this way mm. like every case just makes me happy so i think i think it's just a great job that we have you know like we to me i think we're doing a happy kind of medicine most mm. of our patients leave our clinics better than when they came in and i think we're just very fortunate that so i guess the biggest challenge would be to do anything not related to doctoring like <laughs> yeah. you, you know you, you gotta like 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 do 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 i don't know administrative stuff and all that but i guess it's just a necessary evil it's it boring is. but it's fine <laughs> sure can relate and last question where are yep. we going with all this? What's the future of injectables? What do you what do you see or what have you heard coming in the next few years that might change or revolutionize what we're doing? 
you know, I'm just going to be a little bit boring and say that what we're doing right now, it's normal to me, it's normal to you. It may not be normal to every doctor out there, right? We're still talking about um, filling faces or the opposite of let's not overfill faces. It's just fill, fill and fill. Let's fill more. Let's not fill too much. You know, I think, I think, um, I think what we're doing where, where, where we are sort of like supporting the patient's faces, I think we're just, we're, we're going beyond making her look good. We're actually, I think, slowing down that process at which age changes her face. And I do think that in the end, um, in the in the in the in the ten years to come, this is going to be the method that everybody is gonna gonna be using in one form or another, just because that's the thing that the patient wants. The patient wants to look like a younger, better version of herself, and not you know uh, puffy. And I think this is this is this is an unsexy answer to give, you know. But <laughs> but I, I I truly think that stuff like education, stuff you know, like what you guys are doing, a great job with the IA podcast. Thank you. What, whatever you do today, you kind of like see the results in in a few years' time yeah. because you're changing minds and then you change practices and then you change. And and, and that comes in a few years. So at least for me, as, as, as both an injector and educator, that's that's my hope, you know, that, that we're creating good results and that brings people confidence to to do aesthetic achievements. Yeah, I like, I'll, I'll accept that answer. Good. <laughs> I really enjoyed that. Honestly, we had so much more material and we could probably do a second part yeah. to this. But um, I'm really glad yeah. that we got got that under our belt. It's David. good. It's good. It feels like we the, the circle is being almost complete now. Yeah, we've covered the major continents. So thanks for your time. It was great to meet you. I haven't met you in person, but looking forward to meeting you soon. And now that you're part of our, our Patreon group, you can get all the feedback that uh, everyone's probably going to give you when this episode comes out in a few weeks. Uh, yeah, two or three weeks. Two yeah. or three weeks. So thank oh, you again. Awesome. Yeah, thanks, buddy. Thank I really look forward to seeing you in Singapore in, well, like two weeks now, I think. Yes, yes. No, thanks so much. Um, you know, before I became a patron, I was already like watching this on, on Jake's Instagram. <laughs> I just think you guys are doing a wonderful job, you know, bringing, bringing the, 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 I, I don't know, can I, can I say this? The gist is, I think everybody has sort of like their professional opinion on how aesthetics is or what we do. And, and, and you guys are sharing your precious opinion, but you guys are also bringing on board the opinion of a lot of experts mm. right so you're kind of like I don't know if I'm right to say this you're kind of like we're giving you this information do with it what you will you know but this is good information for you and I think that's just amazing just thank you a lot for doing that and thank you for having me on the show thank you Felix oh, thank you buddy. Appreciate I really appreciate this lovely feedback and um, I'll buy you a beer now <laughs> <laughs> or two <laughs> well well I'm looking forward to seeing you yeah and we'll have to see you in Australia soon so yes. yeah come yeah. and see us yes we'll, 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 five empty suitcases j- absolutely j- just bring your umbrella <laughs> yeah you're gonna need it <laughs> see you buddy take care thanks Felix <laughs> take care thank you so bye much bye bye thanks buddy for our latest news follow us on Instagram at Inside Aesthetics Podcast if you want to get in touch with myself or David follow us on Instagram as well at Dr. Jake Sloan and David underscore Inside Aesthetics join our IA Patreon platform for invaluable business and injectable education get access to our global community of like-minded professionals live and interactive Zoom sessions hints and tip videos webinars and more head over to www.insideaesthetics.com forward slash Patreon for more information 